Hey listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more, but I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today, the good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they're all tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and C-grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and would love to show your support, reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at Finding History Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today's episode is going to be a Valentine's special about courtly love, also referred to as L'Amour Courtois. Personally speaking, I love Valentine's Day. Even as a kid, I remember getting super excited uh, at the end of the day when it would be time to pass out Valentine's. And you had to make sure that you didn't give the the cute person in class um, a suggestive Valentine. So I always had to be careful. I'm like, well, I don't want this card to make Jimmy Jr. think that I like him, even though I might. Um, And then, you know, you had candy and you had cake. And it, it was a fun time, fun time in a 90s classrooms. And as I got older, I think I still always had just this appreci- appreciation for Valentine's Day. You know, it's it's a very hyper-feminine um, holiday, in a sense, with all the hues of red and pink and flowers everywhere and chocolate, like so much chocolate, like c'est l'amour, you know, like, like what's not to love about chocolate? And I, you know, I don't see it as a day that is uh, just for coupled people. And I mean, I know that is how Western culture commercialized it, that it was a day for uh, cis-hetero couples to put on this big show of love declaration. And, you know, that's fine if that's your jam. But the day, to me, has evolved into something else. Now you see more depictions of platonic love being celebrated and friendships being celebrated um, as, to me, Valentine's is the day of love. I think back uh, to an episode of Parks and Recreation where uh, Leslie Nope invites uh, the women in her office out for brunch, I believe on the 13th of February, and declares it Galentine's Day. Ladies celebrating ladies. And what's not to love about that? Whether I've been in a relationship or I've been single, I've made it a point to celebrate this day. I went through a period in my life where I I had mixed feelings about Valentine's Day, where I did definitely feel that it was a holiday for couples and anyone who wasn't a couple kind of just sucked. But, <laughs> um, but that's not fair. And, you know, it, it's not a day that's just for one person. It's for everybody. 
Before the time of the plague, I would celebrate this day by getting a fancy dinner out with girlfriends, or a lover of sorts, or I would go see a concert, something classy and instrumental, then maybe getting some drinks or sharing mozzarella sticks. But alas, this is the year of our plague, so I shall spend this Valentine's Day um, talking to you all, talking to this lovely audience, and I'm also going to be preparing a shrimp scampi and drinking rosé a la Ludwig II style in a golden chalice with rose petals sprinkled on top. And of course, Valentine's could not be complete without a heart-shaped box of chocolates. So, of course, this day is not just a day to celebrate candy hearts and edible panties. No, no, no. It also celebrates St. Valentine of Rome, who was a 3rd century Roman saint commemorated in Christianity on February 14th. From the time of the Middle Ages, his Saint's Day has been associated with the tradition of courtly love, which is the episode topic of the day. I'll also be touching base a little bit on um, chivalry. Uh, can't talk about courtly love without mentioning chivalry. Now, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of courtly love or chivalry? I'll go ahead and start. So I think of John Waterhouse paintings. He did many paintings of women in the form of uh, like Greek mythology or Arthurian and medieval legends such as uh, Tristan and Isolde. Like that was his uh, subject matter. And there was definitely this fantasy and high romantic element to his paintings and so much vivid detail. Uh, the women almost always had long flowing hair with loose fabric surrounded by nature. And my favorites, my favorite of his are the mermaid and the magic circle. Waterhouse even did a portrait of Lady Rosamond uh, Clifford, who was the lover of Henry II that I mentioned in my last episode. So immediately my mind goes to a very art history kind of place when I think of courtly love. Courtly love was a term that was not coined in the Middle Ages. Rather, it uh, came from a French writer by the name of Gaston Paris in 1883 in the journal titled Romania. Again, it's kind of the Victorians redefining what the Middle Ages were and uh, further adding to the uh, fabled facade of the Middle Ages. Uh, the terms that did appear during the medieval period are, uh, let's see if I get this right, amour honestus, uh, meaning honest love, and fin amour, uh, refined love. So what is courtly love exactly, you might be wondering? Well... The simplest definition is it is the literary conception of love that emphasized nobility and chivalry. The very word romance is derived from the old French romance, uh, which began life as the name of a narrative uh, for a narrative poem about chivalric heroes. Only later did the term apply to the distinctive love relationship and evolve into many other meanings. To break it down further, courtly love is a forbidden affair that was characterized by five main attributes. The first was in the name itself, aristocratic. Courtly love implies that this sort of game was practiced by noble lords and ladies. Anyone of lower rank could not participate. Sorry, peasants, get back to the field with ye. 
The second attribute was ritualistic. Couples engaged in a courtly relationship and would exchange gifts and tokens. The lady was to be wooed and was the recipient of songs, poems, bouquets, and ceremonial gestures. Now, this part is great. For all these gentle and painstaking attention on the part of her lover, she only returned a short hint of approval, a gentle nod, or a brief recognition of affection. After all, she was considered the commanding mistress of the affair, and he was her faithful servant. There were also cases of men referring to their lady loves as my lord. That's hot. The third was secretive. Courtly lovers were pledged to secret, uh, strict secrecy. This created a sense of intimacy within the relationship. It was not a love to be shared with others and was exclusively their own. The lovers composed a universe unto themselves, uh, a universe with its own secret rendezvous and rules. The next one is adulterous. So fine love or fin amour almost by definition was extramarital. Indeed, one of its principal attractions was that it offered an escape from the dull routines and boring confinements of noble marriage, which, as I've said before, marriages among nobility were more political and advantageous than anything else. There was little sentiment involved and this lack of love was considered the norm. The troubadours themselves scoffed at marriage, regarding it as a glorified religious swindle. In its place, they exalted their own ideal of a disciplined and dec decorous carnal relationship, whose ultimate objective was not crude physical satisfaction, but a sublime uh, and sensual intimacy. And the last one being um, literary. So before it's, it established itself as a popular real-life activity, Courtly love first gained attention as a subject and theme in imaginative literature. Ardent knights, that is to say, and their passionately adored ladies, were already popular figures in song and fable before they began spawning a host of real-life imitators in palace halls and boudoirs of medieval Europe. So to summarize briefly, the five principles of courtly love are aristocratic, ritualistic, secretive, adulterous, and literary. Medieval literature is filled with examples of knights on adventures and performing various deeds or services for ladies. This kind of love was fiction, of course, but it created for the it was created for the entertainment of nobility, and to be honest, was probably propaganda. Um, there were like 50, 11 crusades and battles happening at the moment, so the idea of a knight leaving uh, became more romantic and less tragic, but that's my two cents. As time passed, these ideas about love changed, and the thoughts spread throughout the court life. Loving nobly was considered to be an enriching and improving practice. Courtly love is thought to have begun in the ducal and princely courts of Aquitaine, Provence, Champagne, and Burgundy at around the end of the 11th century. Courtly love found expression in the lyric poems written by troubadours. 
One of the earliest known troubadours whose work we still have was Eleanor of Aquitaine's grandfather, William the Ninth, Duke of Aquitaine. We have eleven songs of his, and they are listed under the name Count of Poitou. The topics vary from sex, love, women, and his own sexual nature, as well as with feudal politics. An anonymous account of William states, The Count of Poitou was one of the most courtly men in the world, and one of the greatest deceivers of women. He was a fine knight at arms, liberal in his womanizing, and a fine composer, and singer of songs. He traveled much through the world, seducing women. It is possible that this account is not based on his character, but more so a literal interpretation of his songs. In song five of his, for example, he described how he deceived two women. I mean, to me, it sounds like a characteristic, it, this does sound like a characteristic of William, even if it was meant about his work. An artist's work is a reflection of them and their mood. So tales of deceiving women and being lusty is what spoke to him. So to me, it is fair that we take this account, this as an account of who William was, you know, because the Aquitaines, they were just an amorous bunch. The troubadours were not really wandering minstrels. So they, I think there's kind of this idea, this maybe weird, like, a, what is the word I'm looking for? Hippie or transient kind of vibe to troubadours that they were always just kind of like wandering uh, the feudal lands and the courts just singing songs. Well, I mean, that's true, but they weren't that. Uh, they were mostly just rich young men. Because rich people basically just had access to courtly love or the court audience. So uh, they were mostly just rich young men using the Provençal languages or Occitan. And in the north, feudal knights preferred epic poems of chivalry, like the Arthurian tales crossing the channel. And in Germany, these were called Minnesinga. The old Provençal phrase, gossiper, also known as gay knowledge or gay science, was the art of composing love poetry for troubadours of the Provençal region. These colorful figures from the Provence region of southern France sought to redefine traditional Christian ideals of love, marriage, manhood, virtue, and femininity. The term is also associated with the Sobraga Campania del Seven Troubadour de Tulasa, which translates to Very Gay Company of the Seven Troubadours of Toulouse. This was a group of seven citizens of Toulouse who, in 1321, organized yearly competitions to encourage troubadour poetry. By the middle of the 13th century, the troubadour philosophy had become practically institutionalized throughout the courts of Europe, and fine love had become the basis for a glamorous and exciting new lifestyle. Courtly love was a way for nobles to express the love not found in their marriages. Lovers in the context of courtly love need not refer to sex, but rather the act of loving. 
This is not to say that there weren't physical acts of intimacy that occurred between both parties. The whole sneaking around bit, the secretive aspect of it, and the longing between parties no doubt resulted in physical adultery in some cases, though being a noble medieval woman was to be kept a, a close eye on always, either by ladies, not of your choosing, or spies your husband hired. There are references to beds and sleeping in the lover's arms in medieval sources such as poet Chrétien de Troyes, uh, Lancelot, and the troubadour Albas. Albas refers to uh, a genre of old Occitan lyric poetry. It describes the longing of lovers who, having passed a night together, must separate for fear of being discovered. These works refer more to the physical act of intimacy over the desired longing for affection. The following is an example of an alba from an anonymous troubadour, and it describes the longing of a knight for a lady as they part from one another after a forbidden night together. While the nightingale sings, both night and day, I am with my beautiful beneath the flowers until our sentry from the tower cries, Lovers, get up! for I clearly see the sunrise and the day. By the late 12th century, Andreas Capellanus' highly influential work De Amor, concerning love or the art of love, had codified the rules of courtly love. De Amor lists such rules as Marriage is no real excuse for not loving. He who is not jealous cannot love. No one can be bound by a double love. When made public, love rarely endures. Much of its structure and sentiments is derived from the Roman poet Ovid and his work Ars Amatoria. Now let's talk for a minute about uh, Ovid, whose work served as inspiration for the concept of courtly love. His Ars Amatoria had pictured a lover as being enslaved by passion, sighing, trembling, and growing weaker, and even dying for love. The Ovidian lover's adoration was calculated to win sensual rewards. The courtly lover, however, was fired by the respect for his lady. This idealistic outlook may be explained partly by contemporary religious devotions, both orthodox and heretical, especially regarding the Virgin Mary and the Islamic influence on courtly love, which created this sort of hybrid concept of love as a delightful disease that demanded faithful service. Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter, Marie, her firstborn child and oldest child with uh, husband Louis of France, was the patroness of author Andreas Capellanus, as well as Chrétien de Troyes. Marie of Champagne believed fully that it was not possible for love to exist within the bounds of marriage. Chrétien de Troyes is the poet responsible for some of the best-known aspects of the Arthurian legend, including Lancelot's affair with Guinevere and the Grail Quest. His work also includes Eric and Enid, Lancelot, and Percival, or the story of the Grail, all written between 1160 and 1190. Chrétien established the central motifs of the genre of courtly love poetry, which included 
a beautiful woman who is inaccessible either because she is married or imprisoned, a noble knight who was sworn to serve her, a forbidden passionate love shared by both, and last, the impossibility or danger of consummating that love. The development of chivalry with the concept of the honor of a lady and the knightly devotion not only derived from the thinking about the Virgin Mary, but also contributed to it. The medieval veneration of the Virgin Mary was contrasted by the fact that ordinary women, especially those outside of arist aristocratic circles, were looked down upon. Although women were at times viewed as a source of evil, because this is medieval Europe, come on now, it was Mary who was a mediator to God, was a source of refuge for man. The development of medieval Mariology and the changing attitudes towards women paralleled each other and can best be understood in a common context. There's also an element of Catharism in these tales. Catharism was a Christian dualist movement that was popular in Southern Europe. The idea of two gods or deistic principles one good and the other one evil, was central to Cathar beliefs. The lady symbolized good as spirit, and so the knight could never consummate his love for her, while the marriage she was trapped in, sanctified by the church, symbolized the evil of the world. This theory is by no means universally accepted, but it should be noted that there seems to be a direct correlation between the activities of the troubadours of southern France and the spread of Catharism in the 12th century. It is unfair and inaccurate to say that the concept of courtly love was solely based on French origin or that of European origin. I have read a couple of accounts that touch on the Arabic influence in a bit more detail. The Persian philosopher Ibn Sina of the late 10th century developed the notion of the ennobling power of love in his treatise. And now I would try to say the Arabic title of this, and I did actually try to say it, but I kept fucking it up. So I'm going to say it in English. Uh, the Treatise on Love. The element of courtly love, the concept of love as desire, never to be fulfilled, has been found implicitly in Arabic poetry. According to Gustave E. von Grunbaum, an Austrian historian and Arabist, which I feel like the term Arabist might have, been, might have colonizer roots, but don't quote me on that. Um, but they say that several elements developed within Arabic literature, such as delight and torment, to characterize the love experience. It is also important to make note of the Muslim influence on chivalry. Chivalry was the most prominent characteristic of the Muslim Moors, who had conquered the Iberian Peninsula around 711 AD. The countries we know now as Spain and Portugal were referred to then as Al-Andalus. In classic Arab culture, to become a genuine knight, a Faris, one had to master the virtues of dignity, eloquence, gentleness, horsemanship, and artistic talents, as well as skill in weaponry. It is believed that these ancient chivalric virtues were promoted by the Moors, 
who continued to be the majority population of the Iberian Peninsula by 11 AD, and their influence spread throughout Europe. Fatua was a conception of moral behavior around which myriad institutions of medieval confraternity developed. With characteristics similar to chivalry and virtue, these communal associations of Arab men gained significant influence as stable social units that exerted religious, military, and political influence in much of the Islamic world. The famous Spanish author Blasco Ibanez states, Europe did not know chivalry or its adopted literature or sense of honor before the arrival of Arabs in Andalusia and the wide presence of their knights and heroes in the countries of the south. Chivalry also had Carolinian Frankish roots based on the idealization of cavalrymen. The term chivalry derives from the old French term chivalre, which translates as horse soldiery. And I just now made that connection, um, cheval meaning horse to chivalry, because what, to, what do knights ride? Horses. Also, my Duolingo made sure cheval was one of the first words I learned. Je vous un cheval. From the 12th century onward, chivalry came to be understood as a moral, religious, and social code of knightly conduct. The particulars of the code did vary, but the codes overall would have an emphasis on the virtues of courage, honor, and service. Chivalry ideals were popularized by medieval literature from legendary companions of Charlemagne and Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britannae, which is where tales of King Arthur and his knights at the round table began. By the later Middle Ages, chivalry became more romanticized in Europe, but it also became a thing only wealthy people could have access to. Chivalry became a thing of the nobility and landed aristocrats, and it was something only they could participate in. This convinced them that they were superior and had honor, and thus knighthood became a private member's only club. There were more restrictions put on who could actually become a knight. A son of a peasant or a priest could not become a knight. Anyone who was described as a disturbance to the public could not become a knight. In the 13th century, it was believed by some that only those born of knights could become a knight and believe that virtue and honor were inherited traits. I mean, yes, if you refer to virtue and honor as something that is learned, then yes, they can be, like something that is passed down, but that's really not what they're meaning here. Like, it's not so much, my parents taught me to be honor or to have honor and virtue. It was more like, hey kid, it's in your DNA because your dad had honor. Your dad was a knight. So clearly you're, you're deserving of being a knight because you were born into that station. The end of courtly love vanished quickly under the impact of economic and cultural devastation brought by the, let's see if I get this word right, Albigensian Crusade in the mid-13th century. Northern knights headed by Simon de Montfort swept down, the country was impoverished, freedom disappeared, and an inquisition and northern French dialect were imposed. The rules of Paris put an end to the slightly more progressive south of France. 
As I stated earlier, courtly love was coined by French writer Gaston Perry in 1883, but the concept was not fully developed until 1936 by C.S. Lewis in his Allegory of Love. Both Gaston Perry and Lewis had interpreted the literature of courtly love as something unmatched in world literature, when actually it was not. It was simply new to medieval Europe. The Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures both regarded women highly, and their literature bears witness to that. These authors were both writing at a time when the understanding of Egyptian hieroglyphics and Mesopotamian cuneiform was in relative infancy. Many works from both ancient cultures had yet to be translated. The most famously is the love song for Shu Sin from 2000 BCE uh, from Sumer, considered to be the world's oldest love poem, which was not translated until 1951 by Samuel Noah Kramer. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and read all of it because it's actually quite a long poem, but I'll read part of it for you all. Bridegroom, dear to my heart, goodly is your beauty, honey sweet. Lion, dear to my heart, goodly is your beauty, honey sweet. You have captivated me. Let me stand trembling before you. Bridegroom, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. You have captivated me. Let me stand trembling before you. Lion, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. Somehow, whether as religious allegory or role-playing, or simply through the efforts of one woman, the poets of southern France, with no knowledge of the passionate poems of Mesopotamia or Egypt, produced the same sort of literature in a culture which did not support that vision. Women were consistently devalued throughout most of the Middle Ages, but in the poetry of courtly love, they reigned supreme. My final thoughts on the topics of courtly love and chivalry are the following. I believe that it was common knowledge with nobility that so many of them were unhappy in their loveless unions, and that courtly love was an outlet for not only entertainment value, but for safe self-expression. Getting a divorce or annulment, or choosing your partner, if you were a woman, was not accessible or possible in most cases. I also noticed parallels with uh, courtly love and polyamory. Polyamory is the practice of engaging in multiple romantic relationships and sometimes sexual relationships. There are many different ways to perform polyamory, but crucial aspects of it include communication and trust. In the case of courtly love, a woman could get romantic gestures from another man while still remaining loyal to her husband. She could still have her cake and eat it too. There's quite a lot I didn't touch with this episode as far as uh, there's just so many different interpretations of what courtly love was from like a Marxist and a feminist perspective. And this episode could really be a series, uh, but I really just wanted to make something on courtly love for Valentine's because I thought that'd be a fun topic. But if you do want to know like some more about how the, how mysticism and philosophy play into courtly love, well, I suggest checking out the podcast, Ask a Medievalist, and in particular, the episode 
of Love and Hell, which is a mind-blowing episode on Christian mysticism and the parallels of Love and Hell. Like, that's the first episode that I've listened to from Ask a Medievalist, but I plan to listen to a lot more because uh, it's two women hosts, they're super cool, and I just love the flow of their conversation and it's some fascinating stuff. I definitely recommend checking out their podcast, uh, Ask a Medievalist. It should be available. I listen to it on Spotify, but it should be available on, on Apple and Google as well. And they also discuss Minna, which is a Germanic word and is basically love personified, or it's also known as Lady Love. My sources for this episode were ancient.eu, depaul.eu, Britannica.com, and my alma mater, wsu.edu. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to support me, please check me out on Instagram and my Twitter page at Finding History Podcast. And please tune in for my next episode, which will explore the lives of female troubadours, Chubaritz. And um, in that episode, I'm going to be talking more about who these women were and who they wrote about and just kind of the general like history of troubadours themselves. So if you're curious about that, check it out. And until then, I'm wishing you a wonderful Valentine's Day and to stay safe and to stay curious. Bye-bye.